0: The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays, and get access to exclusive content, ticket presales to live events, monthly Q and A's with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you.
1: Hello everybody. This is Glenn Lowry. You've tuned in to The Glenn Show. Uh, I'm a professor at Brown University and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute in New York City, which sponsors The Glenn Show. And my special guest, uh, this week is Sabrina Salvati, uh, who is an influencer and podcaster, an editorialist and online uh, activist on, on the left, a host of the Sabby Sabs podcast and co-host of the Revolutionary Blackout uh, Network. And uh, thank you, Sabby, for joining us today. Uh, along with uh, Sabby is a, a familiar face to people who follow The Glenn Show, my wife, my lovely wife, LaJuan Lowry, um, who is uh, a big fan of Sabrina's uh, and uh, also a woman of the left. Uh, so uh, it's two against one in this conversation, but I'm OK with that. It's, it's two wonderful women against one uh, awestruck guy. So thanks, <laughs> Abby. Thanks, Lawan.
2: Thank you so much for having me on.
1: You're welcome. So. Uh, I was just asking you and you were explaining how uh, long you've been doing your uh, wonderful program, uh, which uh, a lot of people are watching. I mean, you have many tens of thousands of uh, subscribers at YouTube. And uh, I saw your interview with Cornell West, the presidential candidate, and he told he told you and us that he and his wife watch you uh, religiously uh, in the evenings when you do your broadcast and whatnot. So, I was just asking you to explain a little bit about how you got into, into this line of work.
2: Well, there was a little uh, event called Force the Vote uh, Town Hall, a uh, popular push there on the left, where uh, there were podcasters and activists that were asking uh, members of the squad in Congress to force the vote against Nancy Pelosi for Medicare for All. So, I was heavily tuned into left independent media. I was watching the force the vote town hall and I was completely shocked that they weren't willing to force the vote against Nancy Pelosi, particularly because this comes straight from the DSA handbook. So some of the squad members are members of the DSA. After uh, force that's the, the vote,
1: Democratic Socialists of America.
2: Yeah. After force the vote, uh, there was quite a bit of frustration. I think on the left, there were those of us that said, even though we knew that it wasn't going to pass, Medicare for All wouldn't pass. That wasn't the point of the strategy. So there was a lot of rift about whether it was the right strategy or not. And I just found myself just very flustered. And so I I did vent a lot, uh, particularly on Facebook. And it was actually a friend of mine that reached out and said, I hear where you're coming from, but I don't think this is the platform for this. You should probably put this on YouTube. (laughs) So at that point in time, like I already had a couple of vlogs that I did Uh, on YouTube. I also had higher education uh, videos that I did because I was working in higher ed at the time as an academic advisor. So I used to give people tips about how to get into grad school, those types of videos. And so I said, okay, I probably should put this on uh, YouTube. And that's actually how the show started. So I started off interviewing people that were a part of force the vote town hall, uh, people who were activists and those that were also uh, running for office. And then it evolved into a interview slash news show. So I started covering news as well.
1: Why do you think the Democrats were not willing to bring that proposition to a vote on the floor of the House?
2: From what I understand, they were specifically told not to do it. Uh, Apparently, we found this out later on. Apparently, there was a call that went out uh, to left independent media that said, don't push this. They're not going to do it. I didn't know that at the time because I didn't have a show, but that was something that was revealed uh, a couple of months ago, actually, this year. And I think that was a big part of it. Democrat leadership told them not to do it, uh, that they they can get other concessions, I guess, for their districts. I heard Cory Bush got something for her district. I never heard what that something was. Uh, but that is, is completely the opposite of the strategy of Justice Democrats, they were supposed to push back against Democrat establishment. They were supposed to implement those strategies from the DSA handbook. And that was the first sign when I saw that they were starting to cave towards Democrat establishment and it's only
1: increased since then. Lawan you have anything to say about that?
0: So, uh, savvy, I, I, I that's when I, that's about the same time I started uh, walking away from the Democrats was their refusal to force the vote. And I'd, I'd had enough of the young Turks uh, and, and their position on force the vote because I, I watched them. They're the ones who helped me get into left politics as well. And I, I, I just became very disappointed because I, I really thought that AOC and, and the squad, the fraud squad, uh, was going to actually do something, and they did nothing. And that was, I, I'm glad that uh, that people like you and, and, and Jimmy Dore and, uh, were uh, vocal uh, in your positions all forced to vote. It was very helpful to me as to why I needed to walk away from the Democrats.
1: Okay, I'm an outsider here because I, I am not a Democratic Socialist and I'm not a Democrat. I'll I'll be the devil's advocate here a little bit and just say a party is a coalition. Uh, It's got to manage a lot of different competing interests, even within its own ranks. Uh, And uh, your uh, uh, squad members who didn't go along with the program might have been acclimating themselves to the realities of party politics. They may have been not wanting to let the best be the enemy of the good. They may have been biding their time. Uh, isn't it a little bit um, uh, a little bit much to expect in a big tent party that the uh, left wing members are going to throw themselves on their swords every time they run up against the practical calculations of the centrist? I mean, doesn't that coalition require a certain amount of compromise? And uh, what do you guys actually want? Uh, if if you want to actually have some influence over the legislation that gets enacted into law in the, in the Congress.
2: I would say uh, that was their assignment. Uh, their assignment was to go in and to disrupt. Uh, actually, the way it was described at the time was we're going to have a hostile takeover of the Democratic Party. That's how Justice Democrats was promoted. Uh, and in the beginning, some of them did do those things uh, when Trump was in office. In the White House, that was actually when AOC won. Uh, also, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Pressley, and Ilhan Omar. When AOC first came to Congress, she was protesting outside Nancy Pelosi's office. Right? They were very vocal when they first uh, came into Congress. But it was after Trump lost and Biden won that was when I started to see a shift, and I said they're really not gonna they're not gonna push back against the Democratic Party. Uh, it's not even just forced to vote. It's the way they voted on legislation. Uh, Democratic socialists are not supposed to be pro-war. They're not supposed to vote for legislation uh, for, for war escalation. They voted to send the billions of dollars to Ukraine, voting for the Iron Dome or voting present in reference to the Iron Dome. Then they became scabs, <laughs> the, preventing the railroad workers from going on strike. These are completely against the principles of DSA. So I think that that's where a lot of the frustration comes from on the left is like they knew what their assignment was. They knew the task at hand. I think when they first assumed office in Congress, it was easier for them to push back because Donald Trump was the president. So it's easy to appear to be left when the president in the White House is a Republican. when the president in the White House is a Democrat, that was when we started to see the shift. They don't even want to push back against Joe Biden. You know, the way that AOC quickly uh, came out on Pod Save America and said she was endorsing Joe Biden, it goes against everything that they said that they would stand for. You know, you said that you would fight for Medicare for all. Why are you supporting the candidate that's against Medicare for all when there are candidates in the race that are for Medicare for all? So it's just, there's this big shift. I think they've turned into careerists. They want to protect their political career. That's really sad. Cori Bush, for example, was a huge disappointment because she comes from the activist space. So I figured out of all of them, she would really be the one to push the hardest. Then we hear rumblings from D.C. Cori Bush isn't even allowed to talk about defund the police anymore. Her office apparently isn't allowed to speak to people. This, you know... This type of bully mentality in partisan politics, it's it's terrible and it really has to go. So I think the answer is to get away from this duopoly altogether. So I've been pushing and advocating for for people to support independent and third party candidates. We know it's it's a far stretch. We know there's ballot access issues, but. I will say the Green Party and the Libertarian Party have uh, good ballot access. I think Libertarian Party has access in all 50 states. So I think that we have to change people's way of thinking and get people out of this two-party uh, system and show them that there's other things that you can do. You can vote for other people. Uh, and there I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I, I reject the spoiler effect. <laughs> I reject the, you know, Cornel West is going to get Trump or like they said, Jill Stein is the reason Hillary Clinton lost. I think Hillary Clinton lost because she she ran a terrible campaign. She didn't appeal to poor and working class people. Uh, and I just think she's, she's very elitist. And I think we're running into that again. And I think they know that Joe Biden, Joe Biden is not doing a great job, but they're running cover for him in reference to the economy, which I've continued to debunk, but to see these progressive members just constantly defend Joe Biden, it's, it's a real disappointment.
1: Now, uh, Lawan and I watched um, the encounter, I could put it capital T, capital E, between Jimmy Dore and Cornell West. And we also watched your coverage uh, of the encounter. What the heck was going on there? it seemed to me like it was not exactly what was on the surface. Like there was something deeper kind of going on there for people who may not have caught this Jimmy Dore, the comedian and a podcaster and a notable public commentator from the left took Cornel West to task uh, because whereas Cornel West was quick to say that Donald Trump was a fascist, he, well, he pulled his punches when it came to talking about uh, uh, Joe Biden Milk toast neoliberal is as far as he would go. And Jimmy Dore was saying, man, what's up with that? You got to got to call him like you see him. Uh, Biden is as much a fascist as Trump. And as a person who is not on the left, when I saw this, I said, this is a circular firing squad here. Am I wrong?
2: I think that uh, for people like Dr. West, and I, I showed this video recently uh, about Jill Stein too, when they're talking about fascism, they're looking at the definition in reference to breaking the letter of the law, so to speak. So they're looking at it that way. So when they say that Donald Trump is fascist, they're thinking about like January 6th, like the this possible insurrection, so to speak. So they don't see it the way that I see it. And to me, I said that, this is where Dr. West and I disagree. I told him that both of them uh, are fascists. They just do it in different ways. I think Donald Trump was more overt. I think uh, Joe Biden is more covert. Uh, and I did give uh, specific examples. But again, I think I think that people like Dr. West and Joe Stein, when they're thinking about fascism, they're thinking about it in reference to the law. Like, are you trying to break the law, uh, so to speak? So like the January 6th. I think what was interesting to me, though, and I had to remind my audience of this, Jill Stein, when she was running against Hillary Clinton, also said in multiple interviews that Donald Trump was a fascist and Hillary Clinton was, you know, milquetoast, like neoliberal. So I had to play that clip for people. And I said, why didn't we have a problem with that framing back then? Why do we have a problem with it now? And I think it's because people are less tolerant now that we've had Trump and we've had Biden Especially because of the economy. A lot of people are upset about that. But particularly on the left, there isn't much, the threshold is much higher today than it was before. So people are a lot more critical of Dr. West than they were of Jill Stein uh, because of the betrayal of Bernie Sanders and the squad. So people are less trusting on the left today. And that's a big part of the problem. But I think that that is, that is where we do disagree. And I, I did, explain that to Dr. West. I was like, "Ah, I think they're both fascists there. But the thing is, this comparison about who is more fascist than the other, I think people still have in their mind that this is a Bernie Sanders style run where you're running through the Democratic uh, Party primary. Dr. West is a third party candidate. He's running against Joe Biden and Donald Trump. So the focus shouldn't just be on how bad is Joe Biden the focus should be on how bad are both of them. And I think some people are still stuck in that that Bernie Sanders campaign style thinking.
1: Okay, well, I'd say however bad, fascist is a very specific historical thing. I'm thinking about Italy in the 30s and 40s. I'm thinking about Germany. Uh, And I'm thinking the institutional framework of the United States. I think I heard Cornel West say this, Uh, We got a free press. We got an independent judiciary. We've got the right to assembly. We got a First Amendment and so forth and so on. Um, It's it's a little bit of of a kind of exaggeration, isn't it, to object legitimately to deep state stuff or to um, vaccine mandates or to warmongering? Uh, A little bit of an exaggeration, isn't it, to liken that to fashion? It's a little bit like calling Bernie Sanders in 2016, Oh, he's a Marxist. And, you know, he, you know, we can't we can't have a Marxist as our president. It's, it's a it's a pejorative. Where, where am I wrong?
2: I think forcing people to take the jab uh, against their will, I think that is an element of, of fascism, uh, in my opinion. So I live okay. in Massachusetts. My state was locked down. Um, And for those that lived in the States that were not locked down, like my parents live in South Carolina, they were just as free as could be. Um, So going to visit them was like, it felt like going to a different country because they didn't have all the restrictions we had here in Massachusetts. Uh, That was a very, very challenging time. And then on top of that, my employer and other people's employers, it was required that you had to get the jab in order to keep your job. That to me, Felt like an element of of fascism. So there's those types of things. Um, if you want to look back into Joe Biden's background, and we talk about Joe Biden's political record, we talk about the crime bills, all those types of things. I think it's on both sides. But I think that I think that when it comes to uh, Dr. West, the comment that you made about free press, I would question: Do we really have free press? A lot of people I know are being censored. They're being deplatformed. The gray zone has had multiple attacks. I know people that have been removed from PayPal, Venmo, uh, Substack, Patreon. I I don't know. I don't even know if we really do have free press anymore. And you can look at people like Julian Assange. It's like there's all these limitations in reference to what you can say. Uh, Even if we look at the Twitter files, so to speak, that revealed a lot of suppression. And it's one thing to suppress, but it's another thing to Purposely deplatform people. Lee Camp just went through a whole list of issues that he had to deal with in reference to his content and how many times like he's been deplatformed. So I don't even know if we really have free press today. I think we have a free narrative, and I think that narrative comes from the State Department.
1: <laughs> okay, here's what I heard. I'm sorry, Lawal, Did you want to comment? <laughs>
0: I noticed that garland Nixon had also been deplatformed or uh received a couple of strikes against his uh channel as well um I also noticed that uh this is a different it's not press related but it is uh related to free speech that uh there's a a doctor uh his name is dr Berg on youtube and he's uh he's very popular um uh, he's uh his algorithm the algorithms have changed to not support uh finding his videos anymore because he's helped a lot of people with their medical issues and um it's it's changed for him now you can't even find him uh, when you uh search for certain topics such as the the keto diet so it, it's it's not just the press
1: You know, even here uh, at this little humble effort, we've been slapped down with a warning from YouTube because we had somebody on who said something about transgender issues that they didn't like. And it was a perfectly sensible thing. You could disagree with it, but there was nothing hateful about what this guy was saying. Um, I saw another issue in the encounter between Jimmy Dore and Cornel West that I want to try to underscore and get your reaction, uh, Sabrina which was um, identity politics will kill the left. That's what I heard Jimmy Doris saying. I heard him saying, race, class, race, class. We should be with class. That's what I heard Jimmy Dorr saying. And I heard Cornell saying, I'm a Black man. I have a legacy. I have a tradition. I am never going to stop speaking up for the rights of my people and for the you know, vicious white supremacy and et cetera, et cetera. That's Cornell West, my friend. I've known him for 35 years, Cornell. Uh, but that's what I saw. What do you, what do you make of that? The, the issue I'm saying is there's cert- a certain sentiment on the left that so puts so much weight on the identity politics issues that it loses its way with respect to the fundamental economic structural uh, questions that a uh, progressive should be uh, should have as their main thing.
2: I think there's a difference between using your identity to run for office. For example, Kamala Harris, I can be the first black you know, female vice president, that type of thing. That's identity politics when you use your identity uh, to pursue some type of political gain. I think there's a difference between that and telling someone don't talk about race. I think there's a big difference. Cornel West wrote a book called Race Matters, right? So he spent a lot of his career, longer than I've been alive, fighting for racial justice, Black liberation. This is where he comes from. That's what, you know, what he knows. He has been supportive of issues when it was not popular to do so. He's supported the Palestinian people's rights when it wasn't popular to do do so, so much to the point that it cost him tenure at Harvard, right? So when I look back uh, on the justice issues, he's been on the right side of those issues. And I think that when you tell someone like him, don't focus on the, that's gonna be difficult to do because that's where he comes from. And he does have to deal with some of the atrocities that are happening to people in this country because of their race. I, for one, tell people like, yes, class is a big issue. But even when you look at the class issue, a lot of times some of these universal policies that we all fought for, Black people were at the bottom. We talk about the healthcare issue. Black people, particularly Black women, are at the bottom. We talk about the education issue. Black people are at the bottom. So even when Bernie Sanders was running, my push was, yes, it would be great to have these universal programs. However... There are still going to be people at the bottom. There are still going to be racial disparities that Black people in particular have to deal with, not just because of class, but because of their race. So the example I gave people recently, we talked about this as a roundtable on RBN, was the incidents that just happened with the, the shootings. The shooting that happened in Jacksonville, Florida, racially motivated. Those people killed at Dollar General were not killed because of their class. They were killed because they were black. Similar situation with the shooting in Buffalo, New York. These types of things we can't ignore and pretend like it's not happening. And I think that's Dr. West's point. I think Jimmy's point is when you say you're going to go into a community and you're going to talk to Trump people, if you go in saying so-and-so was racist and, and focusing on race, They're going to tune you out. I think what Jimmy was trying to tell him was tailor your message to economics and then they'll listen to what you have to say. However, the way it came across to a lot of people was that don't talk about race at all. And that's just not who Dr. West is. So I think that's why there was a big, a big pushback there between the two. But uh, I have to say, like, after I watched that interview, I was very disappointed just very disappointed, you
1: know. Uh, in both, in both participants.
2: Yes, I was. I was just very disappointed because that's that's two people that have a long-standing relationship. It's not like this was just an interview with someone that I admire. They know each other. They had a relationship, and it, it's very apparent to me. Even at the very beginning of the interview, it seemed personal. Just from what I saw, it didn't seem like friendly type. of... You know, I watched the RFK Jr. interview very different vibe. I I watched the Marianne Williamson interview, even with that still kind of different vibe. And I felt like it was personal. And I say that also because I know that Jimmy did say on his show before that he reached out to the campaign to offer to help with the campaign. He talked about this on the show. And apparently, I guess the campaign either didn't respond or didn't want that, did not want to pursue that. So, I think sometimes if if you're friends with someone and you're looking at a professional opportunity, because let's be real, if you're working with someone's campaign, that's still a professional uh, gig there. Sometimes we may think that because they're our friend, that they should want me to help them. They should say, yes, like I want to be a part of your campaign. But I think Dr. West was looking at this from a perspective of, is this going to be helpful for the message that I'm trying to bring across to the people? That could be the possibility. I don't know, but it was obvious. Like I saw the videos leading up to that interview. It was very obvious to me that there was some tension there.
1: Yeah. Uh, I noticed even right at the beginning when Cornell tried to, uh, he, he mentioned the comic Carlin, who I guess had a relationship with Jimmy Dore way back in the day. And, uh, trying to you know loosen things up and whatever and and uh jimmy wasn't having it he he was loaded for bear you know we went to yeah. see jimmy door live in hartford connecticut a few months ago
2: yeah i saw him here in massachusetts in northampton yeah what did you think of the show I thought it was funny. It was interesting. That was my first time seeing his stand-up live. So I didn't realize that uh, Steph also did comedy too. So like she his did a little stand-up. Pe- yeah, I didn't realize that. So she did the stand-up piece. So it was really interesting. It was a packed packed house. Um, but yeah, it's, it was to- it's a totally different vibe than watching the show. Because it, it, they used to do like the stand-up. I remember when they used to uh, bring the, or what do you call it? used to have the projector and they would actually put up news segments. I remember seeing videos of that on YouTube, but this was just strictly uh stand up, so it was pretty interesting. Oh.
1: There was a free Julian Assange demonstration that uh spontaneously erupted outside of the uh comedy club in Hartford uh in which my wife was happily participating. <laughs> so, yes.
2: free Julian Assange. Yes. Yeah, that is awesome. I um, I saw that Chris Smalls actually just met with uh, Julian Assange's father. I got a chance to meet his father and his brother uh, months ago uh, when they came here to to Boston. So, yeah, they're they're great
1: people. Let me ask you a question about Donald Trump. It's not really about Donald Trump. It's about his supporters. He loves the poorly educated, says uh, the former president, and. A lot of his enthusiastic support is coming from people who ought to be, shouldn't they, candidates for enrollment in a progressive, left of center, anti-capitalist. These are people, working class people. These are farmers. These are laborers, uh, et cetera. They happen to be white. Many of them are in the South. Uh, They vote Republican. Uh, What would a progressive movement do? What should it do or can it do to appeal to such people? Or how is it that this quote unquote fascist Republican has managed to capture their imaginations? Sounds like somebody's asleep at the switch.
2: They're going to have to focus on the economy. They're going to have that's going to have to be the number one focus, because I was talking about this the other day, the inflation rate has increased again. And Ro Khanna is doing a lot of interviews. He's on this press store and he's telling people the economy is great. Joe Biden's doing a great job. He's done many things, but they're not telling people that, that the inflation rate has increased again. The child poverty rate has doubled. They're leaving that out as well. They're just talking about the infrastructure bill. The infrastructure bill is not putting money into people's pockets. It's not putting food on the table. Gas prices are still high for people the grocery store prices have continued to increase. It seems like weekly uh, for me, but you have to talk about those economic conditions and needs that people are dealing with today. So I think if someone went in with that message and said, I understand the economy is terrible, inflation's high, you're living paycheck to paycheck, they're gonna have to focus on the economy. I've noticed with the Republican candidates so far, aye, aye, aye. Uh, I see why Donald Trump has the lead that he has (laughs) because (laughs) even with Ron DeSantis, when he started out his campaign, he was focusing on, we're not going to deal with this woke, this and woke that. I'm like, the economy is bad. You should probably focus on that. Uh, Vivek, I don't know what's happening with Vivek. Vivek has dropped significantly in the polls. You know, he seems to be kind of all over the place. He's like Donald Trump light or something like that. I think they need to focus on those core economic issues. And I feel like they're not doing that. And I think that's why, part of the reason why Trump has the lead that he has. Also, I think a lot of these indictments actually increased Donald Trump's support, which I predicted that would happen. People would see him as a martyr and they would say, oh no, they're, tr- they're trying to get him. Uh, and his support would increase. But I don't see anyone
1: else winning this race except for Donald Trump. You mean not the Republican nomination? You mean the the full thing?
2: The Republican nomination. I don't see anyone winning that for
1: him. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, Was it at your show that I saw you, a clip of uh, some African-Americans who were saying about Donald Trump, he's a nigger. Uh, You know, you go through Fulton County Jail, you go through the lockup, man, you a brother as far as I'm concerned. And there was one guy that had N-word for Trump, you know, On this placard, you know. Yep. So that's pretty interesting.
2: This is something I I think the Democratic Party is falling asleep at the wheel with this. Uh, If you do talk to more like working class uh, Black people, poor Black people, some of them are starting to change their mind and support Donald Trump. Not just because of the indictments, but that combined with the economy. So there's a, a big... I really do feel, and I've been saying this before, uh, the Democratic Party I think has taken the Black vote for granted, and I say I think it's only a matter of time before they start to see that we don't they don't have the Black vote anymore. I really think that's only. But the thing is, I think the Democratic Party is they're trying to get to the point where they can rely on the Latino vote. I really think that's what they're trying to do because they see that they are losing support among uh, Black voters. But I just the amount 20, 20 percent of African-Americans said they support Donald Trump now. Compared to 2020, that's crazy. I have a I have a younger cousin and he's a he's a
0: truck driver. And this was last year. And he said, I am no longer happy with the Democrats. I'm voting for Trump. And I, I figured that was probably going to be a trend. and. This is, this is what's occurring now. I was really surprised to hear that. I, I certainly was not uh, attempting to convince him to vote Democrat. And I, I, I said, well, I don't think you should vote for Trump either, but it, it's, it's your prerogative. And he said, hey, I'm, I'm tired of the promises that I've heard from the Democrats, and, and I'm tired of them taking me for granted.
2: This Particularly is- Black men. Yes. Because when people ask, well, why are Black women you know, not leaving the Democratic Party the same way that Black men are, I think it has to deal with women's rights, right? So the abortion issue, that's a big part of it. Uh, But particularly Black men are leaving the Democratic Party.
1: It's really important to get life insurance. If you have a family like I do, you know how much your loved ones depend upon you. In a worst case scenario, you wouldn't want to have to worry about them having enough money. A good life insurance plan can give you peace of mind that if something were to happen to you, your family will have a safety net to cover mortgage payments and college costs and other expenses so that they can get back on their feet and focus on what's most important. I can tell you from personal experience as a man in his 70s who remarried after his former wife passed away to a younger woman that it's super satisfying. To check life insurance off of my to do list. And getting covered can be even more satisfying when you use Policy Genius. Policy Genius was built to modernize the life insurance industry. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can sign life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year or $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find the best fit for your needs. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. Policy Genius is for parents, for caregivers, and anyone else who has people who depend upon them. They simplify the process of getting life insurance so that you can protect the people you love. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and to see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Okay, let's talk about the economy a little bit more. um, And I'm going to try to be provocative here. If If I'm for the working man, I'm against climate alarmism. Because these people basically want to shut down the industrial economy, and that is the lifeline for a lot of working people. If I'm for uh, the uh, the guys at the bottom, the men and women at the bottom of the economic hierarchy, uh, I don't want an open border where people are just walking across willy-nilly without restraint, because at the end of the day, they're going to end up competing for the same jobs that uh other people are trying to get, and they're going to end up putting downward pressure on wages. A $25 an hour minimum wage and an open border just don't compute. What's wrong with what I just said?
2: I would say in reference to the climate issue, those industrialized jobs are going to have to transition over uh, to a different style. Like, for example, this was something that Obama, he did talk about this during his presidency. There were some some changes in reference to those jobs, but not not in the way that it should have been uh, if we need to move away from coal, we have to move towards other other options there, like solar options or wind options and I think that people should not rule out nuclear. I know it can be somewhat controversial, but at the same time, like how much sun and and you know solar power can we really rely on? I think people should not rule out that as well, but Eventually, it's going to get to a point where we're going to have to transition away from those jobs. That being said, though, for the people who are very passionate about climate, the military-industrial complex is the biggest issue. It's the largest, single, most polluter of the world. So if you are a climate activist, I would also argue you should be an anti-war activist. And I've said this to some of my friends that are passionate about the, cli- the climate. You know, why aren't you out there protesting against these wars? We have to talk about the methane gases that are released. We have to talk about the CO two that's released. We also have to talk about how people in these countries are poisoned years later, even after these wars are done, because of the chemicals that have been distributed during those wars. So I think all these things are important. But but to your point, the number one issue that you should be fo- focusing on as a climate activist is the military industrial complex. In reference to the the border issue, I think. One thing that is left out often, and I've seen this as well, we have to talk about like people in reference to immigration. A lot of times the focus on, is on people crossing the border. But we have to ask, why are they coming here? And the reason why they're coming here is because of the destruction in their own countries, which we can c- contribute to the United States military. The United States government has caused a lot of this destruction in those countries. That's why they're leaving and coming here. So that's That's number one. Number two, we cannot forget about people who come into this country legally, but overstay their visas. And that's a big one. And this is the part, like when I tell people, a lot of people come here, not necessarily on foot, but on planes. And they they come here legally, but they overstay their visas. So there's a lot of that that happens as well. I think that until you fix the amount of imperialism the amount of U.S. catastrophe in those countries, in countries like Haiti, in the Global South, I think it's going to be hard for those people to turn away. You, you have to fix the destruction that the United States government has done to people in those countries that is pushing those people out of their countries.
1: Yeah, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with the stuff about climate either. Uh and let me let me try to say why very succinctly. And I invite rebuttal. Um, automobiles must be generating more uh, CO2 in their exhaust than whatever the military is doing. I don't know exactly what the military is doing. I know we probably blew up that, we the U.S. probably blew up that Nord Stream pipeline, which released a lot of gas into the atmosphere and so forth. But automobiles, okay, burning fossil fuels to generate electricity. You say nuclear, that's a good thing. But those things just quantitatively have got to be massively more significant than whatever the military is doing. So it seems to me, I invite your rebuttal. Um, on the thing about the U.S. foreign policy being uh, in the uh, hemisphere, being a source for uh, for migrants, let me grant the point. I don't want to argue the point about what did the U.S. do in Chile, Venezuela, Cuba, uh, Central America, whatever, whatever. What I want to say is, apples and oranges, even if I grant that the U.S. is responsible for disruption in those countries, doesn't answer the question that I have to let people walk across the border without authorization. Those are two separate things altogether. Or are you saying we got it coming? Chicken's coming home to roost. We deserve the inundation because our hands are dirty with respect to meddling in uh, regional politics. So um, I offer that.
2: I think we deserve it. Let's use a country like Haiti, for example. A lot of people don't know this. A lot of people talk about the earthquakes in Haiti, but let's go further back. Let's go back to Woodrow Wilson's presidency. Woodrow Wilson intervened in Haiti. He brought in the U.S. Marines to occupy Haiti, not just militarily, but also financially. The U.S. government took over their businesses, seized their businesses, and also seized their banks. The U.S. government had no reason to do that. This is just what we do. We go into other countries, we take over, we take their resources, and we try to destroy these countries. And then we say, we put our hands up in the air and say, oh, I don't know why they're coming here. We know exactly why they're coming here. So I I felt like, I do feel like we kind of had it coming. You know, in reference to um, the climate issue where you were talking about the, the automobiles, the military industrial complex the tanks that the military use, the exhaust, the emissions that come from those tanks, it burns more gas at a faster rate. It is more powerful to the environment than your typical automobile. So when I say the military industrial complex, it's not just the bombs, it's not just war, it's also the vehicles that are used by the military industrial complex. So those tanks, those vehicles, emit more emissions into the environment than your average car. So I think these are things that the people need to look up the data and actually see is that the military industrial complex is a big problem. And until we stop that and we want to go further to transportation, planes. Planes emit a lot of a lot of uh, you know, emissions of what as well. So there there's a lot of factors here. I understand what you're saying about like the climate uh, uh, catastrophe. There is a, a push more for it. CNN was actually caught on camera by undercover investigator where they said that they were going to start pushing the whole climate uh, issue. So I understand where you're coming from. I think some of it can be exaggerated, but I do think if you look at the data, like if even if you look for NASA on NASA's site, if you look at the data, yes, the the ocean it it is getting warmer, and we have to pay attention to those things. So there are like climate issues. There are things that are happening. Naturally, that was just going to happen, but I think that the military-industrial complex actually escalated those things.
1: Okay. maybe. do you want to add anything to that?
0: Well, I'd, I'd like to say that um I, I think that I I, I can't say on uh, which, uh, which side I fall regarding the climate issue, and I definitely uh know that there are a lot more emissions from uh from those tanks and from airplanes uh, private planes as well um, and uh even um agricultural large agricultural farms um I know that uh there's a lot of blame on cows for example and methane emission
1: <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't Which, laugh i'm sh- it's a serious <laughs> issue but cows
0: uh, it is but uh, you have small farms uh, that also have cows and how much methane are they contributing? Uh, are they really harming uh, the climate uh, from smaller farms versus these uh, large scale farms with feedlots and, and, um, and cattle that are unhealthy? So uh, it, it, it's really hard to uh, distinguish um, what's really occurring and what's really impactful. Uh so I, I do respect the fact that we do have to look at the military industrial complex with regard to emissions as well.
1: Okay. The reason I move forward in my chair is that um I was going to bring up the great debate about capitalism versus socialism that I had with Professor Richard Wolfe, noted Marxist economist. He's a very proud Marxist economist. I am not a Marxist economist, I'm a neoliberal economist. And uh, we sat in the studio in New York City, and uh, my lovely wife, Lawan Lowry, moderated this debate, and I'm going to stick my neck out here and ask her who she thinks won the debate.
0: Oh, gosh, you had to ask that, didn't
1: you? <laughs> I'm just trying to provoke <laughs> Sabrina to expound on the relative merits. No, you can go ahead and say what you really think. I can take it. I can take it. Uh,
0: well... I don't like to, first of all, with regard to debates, I, I don't like to say who won. Okay. Uh I, I like to I like to look at uh each each side's points and who provided stronger points. But as far as winning, um no, I, I think that Professor Wolf provided some strong points, and so did you. Um I didn't necessarily agree with either one of you regarding the Fed, but uh it was still a good debate <laughs> you You both thought that the Fed was necessary and and um i'm I'm with Ron Paul. I don't think it is.
1: She's with Ron Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Defund the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States of America. okay, here's Sabrina is my argument in very, very brief. World War II ends. The Soviet Union occupies the east of Germany. The Western powers occupy the west of Germany. Fast forward 30 or 40 years, look at the economies of those two countries. The ones that were governed by socialism uh, floundered. The ones that were in the embrace of capitalism prospered. Uh, Likewise, fast forward to 1949, 1950, 51, the conflict on the Korean Peninsula. The Chinese occupy in the north the communist north, the uh, 38th parallel, the uh, democratic uh, capitalist south. Fast forward another 30 or 40 years and look at what you see. You see a, a prospering society south of that parallel, and you see devastation north of that parallel. Centralized control over resources, the political allocation of economic resources doesn't lead to prosperity, it leads to poverty. And I'll I'll stop, but just one more thing. China is a so-called communist country with a capitalist economy, and that's why they're growing rich. India, with two billion people, is fast joining the uh, forefront of nations in terms of economic influence and impact, and that's because they're allowing markets and private property and free enterprise and profit-seeking to drive their economic development. The jury is in. Socialism doesn't work.
2: How is capitalism working out for people in the United States, and when you say uh prospered, who prospered which 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 people everybody see i think I think this is the thing when I talk about socialism, I'm talking about people owning the means of production, and I think like there's a lot of talk right now about the unions we were just talking about the u a w possible strike, whatever that turned out to be uh strike there. And I continue to tell my audience, this is why we can't just stop at unions, because the union managers have been known to turn on the union members uh, to sell them out. They will will escalate and say that we're going to have a strike. And then last minute, they'll just sell out the members and say, no, we just went ahead and took the deal. A lot of times the members don't have a voice at the bargaining table. And this is why I always bring it back to worker co-ops, because I think it's important. When you look at worker co-ops, the workers... They own a piece of the company, most Americans today don't own anything and, and not even just the the companies, but they don 't own a home they don't own a car they don't most of the people just don't own anything so ownership has become a big problem in this country, and I think part of that has to do with I'm going to go back to the 08 housing crisis. I still think it took us a long time to even level out after the 08 housing crisis. I think people are still struggling with that. And now here we go again. We're in another housing bubble where the housing prices, again, are ridiculous, especially here in Massachusetts. I'll use locally, for example. When we bought this house, that was during the pandemic when the interest rates decreased. They were dramatically low. We said, well, better do it now. If we would have waited to the next year, we would have not been able to buy a house. That's how, how significantly the housing prices have increased. You have companies like BlackRock who buy up single family homes, they renovate them and they increase the price. And this is why a lot of young people graduating from college today can't afford to buy a home because you have these other companies that have come in. We have to find a way to remove these businesses from from housing we have to prevent them from owning this type of private equity because this is not going to end and a lot of people are going to run into this issue where they're going to become forever renters so who is capitalism working out for because the average person the average working class person especially if you're poor a lot of people forget about poor people but the average working class person they're not going to own anything they're not going to come, be able to come up with enough money for a down payment on a home, especially today. Kids are graduating college with bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, PhDs, and they still can't can't put a down payment on a home. So when is this going to end? So what I always say is, you know, when you are working for an employer, when it's not a part of a worker co-op, you are really you're you're at their their, their behest in in a way. They can lay you off anytime they want to. Even when you talk about benefits, all of these jobs that Joe Biden says he created, how many of these jobs are temp positions, contract positions? Are these full-time jobs with benefits? Because from what I've heard from people, a lot of these jobs don't even have full benefits. So who was capitalism really working out for? Because what I see is a lot of people who are at the very top, that are making a lot of money, a lot of these CEOs and these millionaires and billionaires, they got there because they're exploiting people at the bottom. So the people who are making that $15 an hour, the $19 uh, an hour cap that UAW talked about at Jeep. So th- this, is, this is a problem. There are too many people in this country in particular that are struggling. struggling. When we talk about internationally, we can also talk about exploitation internationally. One of the things that was brought to my attention a couple months ago, when you look at some of these countries, like a Denmark, so to speak, and they say that we have these universal programs, we have all this stuff for the people, a lot of times what people don't realize, even though people in that country may not be exploited, they're exploiting people in the global South. They're getting those products and goods from the global South. So the exploitation is still happening. So who does capitalism actually work out for?
1: The hundreds of millions of peasants in rural China who have migrated to small towns and to bigger towns and are working in factories and are living much, much better than they would have been living if they'd stayed on the land. Uh, Likewise, the hundreds of millions in South Asia who are part of this burgeoning Indian uh, dynamic economy that uh, is changing the face of uh, of their country and and ultimately uh, of the world. Um, I mean, compared to what? I grant you there's inequality under capitalism. It's better to be rich than to be poor. There's not any question about that. And I grant you that there's exploitation. I I agree that there is exploitation. But compared to what? You want to collectivize the allocation of housing? Uh, You know, you you want to make that into a political football? I mean, uh, you know, I'm skeptical that it's going to work out.
0: Well, but but, uh, capitalism in 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 these other countries at the expense of Americans. Um, what about the jobs that were lost here that went to China or to India? What happens to the people who live under the capitalist system here and in the working class? They've lost their jobs. They've lost their, their livelihoods, opportunities to, to participate in the capitalist system.
1: Well, if you're asking me, I would have relatively open markets and I would take care of people who got displaced with social policy, allowing them to transition, retrain, or whatever. But I wouldn't try to hold on to every job to the last moment because technologies change. And because uh, if I have a country of 500 million people or something like that coming online in terms of the global economy, it's going to be a shift in where stuff gets produced and we have to roll with those punches. I, I wouldn't try to freeze into. Permanence, the current allocation, uh, because the fundamentals are, are shifting, and that's just the way of the world. Uh, the other thing I would say is, I mean, I'm going to link the immigration discussion with the capitalism discussion. People are lining up to try to get into this terribly exploitative and horrific capitalist society because there's opportunity here, and that's because of capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's
0: because that's because the. Of- those countries that the United States has effectively leveled, uh, how many jobs are available there versus here? And some of those jobs, as uh, former president of Mexico, Vicente Fox, said, uh, they'll do those jobs that Americans won't do. Yes. Well,
1: yeah, there is that. Uh, I'm not sure that's a bad thing, actually.
0: It's It's not a bad thing, but. Uh I I don't I, I I guess my problem is uh they're vilified for coming here and they're uh they're accused of taking other Americans' jobs, but which Americans will really do those jobs?
1: Just for the record, I don't want to close border to people coming in. I just want to have control and discretion over who enters the country. I don't want it to be a willy-nilly open border situation as it is in effect right now. I want it to be a result of conscious policy by the government uh, representing the people on behalf of who should uh, be in our country.
0: That's fine with me. I, I I don't see anything wrong with that. Other countries do it as well. So uh, well, but I, I think the stop leveling other countries in the process.
2: Yeah. And I think the entire immigration issue in this country definitely needs to be fixed. It shouldn't take people. You know, ten years to become a citizen either, and I know people that have gone through that process, and it's been very long. Uh, so I just, it's to me, it's just that the whole thing just just needs to be fixed. But we have to remember, in reference to the border, that's Kamala Harris's assignment. She is supposed to be in charge of the border and immigration.
1: Okay, how's she
2: doing? She is not doing a good job. <laughs>
0: Well, like she said, don't come. That's our solution. Don't
1: come. Okay, we have a few minutes left. I won't talk about the cops. I won't talk about Cop City. I won't talk about defund the police. And I want to say the following thing. I, I don't know a whole lot about Cop City, Atlanta. I know they're trying to build a training facility and people are against it and there's a movement and, and you know, more power to them. I don't I don't have a dog in that fight, but I'm prepared to acknowledge that there's some legitimate concerns about Militarizing a police. But defund the police with the level of personal violence and threat to property being as great as it is, especially for people with marginal resources. Of course, they don't want to be brutalized by racist cops. Of course. On the other hand, they want somebody to answer when they call 911, when they hear gunshots outside their place, when somebody jacks their car or robs them at gunpoint. Those are disproportionately black people who are victimized. We want good policing, but we don't want no policing. Please tell me what is wrong with that, because if you go with a microphone and you ask people on the street what they want, that's pretty much what they tell you. They don't want racist cops, but they want someone to answer when they call 911 because it can get pretty bad out here.
2: But, why is it getting pretty bad out here to begin with? This goes back to the the poverty issue, right? So the homelessness rate has increased by twenty five percent. Tent communities have popped up all across the country. It's not just a California problem anymore, right so there, there's a lot of poverty. So a lot of crime is attached to poverty, not all of it, but there is a lot of it that is. In reference to the police solving crime, police only solve zero point zero two percent crime. So I don't even know what police are doing most of the time, but it doesn't seem like they're actually solving these, these crimes that are happening. Do police actually prevent crime? Did police prevent the shooting that happened at the Dollar General in Jacksonville, Florida? Like, it just, So what exactly what exactly are the police doing? People that deal with sexual assault cases. There are rape kits that are sitting in police departments that haven't even been tested. This is a common issue. What exactly do they do? And if if you talk to people that live in those marginalized communities, particularly in the inner city, if you talk to people that live in like Baltimore, for example, they'll tell you if they call the police, first of all, how long does it take the police to show up in the first place? And then two, are the police actually there to solve any type of crime? Or did the police show up and actually harass the people who called the police in the first place? So it all it all depends. I've always said that police protect capital, police protect wealth. So if you're wealthy, The cops will probably have your back. They'll be there in a minute if somebody breaks into your house. But for poor people or particularly poor black people, the police aren't trying to help them. The police are trying to arrest them.
1: Okay, Uh, I'm going to have to answer that. The issue is not do the police prevent crimes that are happening. The issue is how many more crimes would be happening if there weren't any police? I think policing does prevent crime, but it doesn't prevent the crime that has actually happened. They are coming after the fact to investigate or whatever. But the fact that someone will be coming to investigate deters others from taking actions that are harmful, but that they know will get them into trouble. A world without policing is the world that I want to imagine. No police. Everybody knows there's no police. There's more weapons on the street. There's more interpersonal violence. There's less security of property. Um, It's a a wild kingdom. It is going to invite vigilantism. It's going to be every person for himself. I don't know where you are on the Second Amendment, but a world without police is a world where the Second Amendment is going to get exploited heavily by people because it'll be on them to protect themselves uh, and so forth and so on. I I don't know why that's a world that we should welcome. Better policing, not no policing. Well, I
2: think the... The entire tree is rotten and you have to pull up the tree by the root. You can't just remove a couple of branches, which is which is what reform is removing a couple of branches and hoping that the tree will improve. Uh, we've had like police reform. They've implemented body cams. Police officers just turned the body cameras off. So I think the entire system needs to be torn down and rebuilt into something else. So, for example, traffic stops. I do not think police officers should make traffic stops. You can actually have someone else do that. Mental health crisis issues. Police officers should not go to those. They don't know how to deal with someone that is mentally ill. They're not trained to do that. But there are social workers that are trained to deal with people that have mental illness. So there are other areas and aspects in reference to some of these crimes that do happen where there are other people that are more trained to do that instead of the police. But again, when we talk about a lot of these crimes that happen, are they really solving these crimes? And I I think I, to, I get what you're saying. Like, you feel that crime will escalate if people know there's a world without any police. Right. I understand where you're coming from with that. But again, I, I want to know why they're not solving some of these crimes. A lot of them, most of them are not solved.
1: Okay. Um, I'm going to broach another issue. The war in Ukraine. Vladimir Putin is uh, the Hitler of our time. Uh, we must, uh, as long as it takes, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, I have heard you opine on that, uh, And I wonder if you wouldn't be willing to share some of that with uh, the Glenn Show audience here because I have a lot of common ground with you on that.
2: Right. We should not be giving money to Ukraine. Uh, The billions of dollars that has gone out to the door to Ukraine is ridiculous. We have a defense budget that's over $800 billion. We can decrease that, I believe. But this, honestly, we should not be involved in. What people have to understand is this war was escalated by NATO. They wanted a proxy war. I really believe that this is not about protecting the Ukrainian people. And I'll give an example that just happened recently. The Biden administration approved to send uranium shells uh, to Ukraine for them to fight against Russia. What people have to understand with that is that uranium shells actually cause other health issues for people in the area, such as cancer and birth defects, even for years after the wars have ended. That's not saving Ukrainian people's lives. It's a big, big problem. Number three, in reference to Vladimir Putin, I have criticisms of of Vladimir Putin as well. I don't think he should have invaded. But I'll also say there was a call for negotiation of peace earlier on, and the United States government and NATO did not want to approve that, that peace because they wanted the war. So people have to understand this is not about protecting Ukraine. This is about a possible regime change to remove Vladimir Putin in Russia. That, in my opinion, is what I've seen is the US goal. That's their ultimate thing is to stop Russia, to weaken Russia. And they're already looking at China. We are basically having a government that has just become warhawks. If they're not looking at Russia, they're looking at China. And why is that? Economic reasons, from what I've seen. China is doing very well economically. Our last I saw, they almost eradicate, they've almost eradicated our homelessness in China. Russia actually is doing well economically, even after the sanctions that were implemented on them by the U.S. government, Russia actually was not hurt the way that other countries were when they implemented those sanctions. So we talked about the heating crisis in the U.K. We talked about the energy issues in Germany. We talked about the the food, um, the food scarcity in North Korea. All these things that happen like a domino effect after they put the sanctions on Russia because a lot of countries depend on that fertilizer Uh, coming from Russia. So the thing is, is this. Mainstream media is constantly going to make you think that Vladimir Putin, Russia is the enemy. They're not going to tell you what happened prior to this. The prior, you know, offers of peace negotiation. They're going to make it seem like the U.S. is in this fight. NATO's in this fight to help people in Ukraine and that Ukraine are the good guys and that we have to stay in it for as long as it takes. And if you believe that, I want you to know that you are possibly looking at another Afghanistan, another 20-year conflict. And the American people need to start pushing back on these types of escalations and these proxy wars.
1: Thank you. Um, I am not going to try to rebut that because I don't want to. (laughs) 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 What I do want is to give my lovely wife, LaJuan, an opportunity if she chooses to uh, offer some final words before we close out.
0: And Sabi, I'd just like to uh, uh, say to you that uh, you and my husband have, uh, have a few things in common and uh, the most common uh, phrase I've heard from the both of you is nobody's coming to save us. Um he says he would say that a lot when we were arguing about certain issues, and and that would make me angry. And then I started realizing that yeah, nobody's coming to save us. <laughs> and then when you said it, I said, well, she's made it clear that no one's coming to save us. <laughs> so I, I I do agree with 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 the both of you. Um, thank you. <laughs> I also want to um, uh, ask you of. Uh, uh, I I watched your um, assessment of the Brie and Kyle and Crystal uh, debate. And I I have to agree with you. I was was pulling my hair out listening to uh, both Kyle and Crystal when they used to be so so much more progressive uh, just a few years ago. Um, And to see how Kyle disrespected Rihanna so much uh how do you deal with that when uh if you're
2: disrespected by um a guest it's tricky because I have to keep my cool because if I don't keep my cool then people you know the trolls come out online and people will say oh she's this this angry woman and then you get the angry Black woman trope, which is that happened to Bree when she debated Sam Cedar about force the vote. The trolls came out on Twitter and they said, she's angry woman, rah, like that kind of thing. So it's tricky because I have to maintain my cool. But at the same time, I have to be assertive and get my point across without yelling and interjecting. And I think that's what some people may not understand. Uh, when I interviewed Peter Dow last night, some people tried not to look at the chat. Some people in the chat were like, interrupt, break up him, destroy him. Uh, no, uh, that's not who I am. And I don't think that uh, you need to uh, converse with people in that way to get your point across. I think that you can push back without yelling at people and screaming and saying, tear their head off. Also, too, uh, the way that I would be looked at doing that versus the way that, Someone like a Crystal and Kyle doing that is very different. And people have to understand that in this particular space. Uh, I was disappointed. I didn't understand why it was two against one. That was odd to me. Although I think Bree held her own. I think she did a really great job uh, with that debate. But yeah.
1: just- let, let me tell people that Brie is Brianna Joy Gray, the African-American woman uh, podcaster and commentator of some note. Anyway, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you.
2: Yeah, just the lack of disrespect. It just came across as really disrespectful for me, uh, the constant interruptions and just wanting to be heard. But the reality is, I think a lot of us that watch left independent media for a long time, we see the writing on the wall after Trump lost and Joe Biden won. Some of these channels that did really well during the Bernie campaigns you know, started asking, like, what am I going to do now? Like, where's this Where's this money going to come from? And some of them have started to pivot towards, you know, supporting these establishment Democrats they told us to fight back against. They've done the same thing that the squad has done. They're just following the money. And I think money changed them. (laughs) Be honest. I concur.
0: I concur.
1: Okay, I think that's an appropriate final word. This has been a special edition of The Glenn Show. Uh, My wife has joined us for the first time, and that's an exciting development. More to come. And our special guest uh, has been Sabrina Salvati of Sabby Sab's podcast, uh, an African-American woman of high intelligence and eloquence, who is a woman of the left. And I'm happy to have her as a guest on the show. So thanks, Sabby.
2: Thank you so much.